Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here at GCF. I want to welcome you again to our, our worship service, and uh, it's good to be here with you, and it's great to see you here, especially if you are perhaps worshiping with us uh, maybe for the very first time. Happy Reformation Day, Reformation Sunday at least. I love your costumes. You guys look great. Uh, you really look good. Uh, we exist as a church to glorify God through gospel-centered worship, evangelism, discipleship, and community. And so uh, this being on the church calendar, Reformation Sunday, tomorrow being Reformation Day, October 31st, really the beginning of the Protestant Reformation over 500 years ago and really the, the rediscovery over 500 years ago of this beautiful gospel that we love, that we profess, that we proclaim uh, and so uh, it's, it's a joy to be able to open up God's word. One of the ways that we rejoice in the gospel is to hear the word of God. And so it's just what we do uh, as faithfully as we can. So with that, uh, Mark chapter 7, the words will be up on screen here behind me. Mark chapter 7, and our text today is uh, starting at verse 24 and going through verse 37. Mark chapter 7. Starting at verse 24, if you're able to, please stand as I read God's word. Mark 7, starting at verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Epapha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released. And he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is God's word for us today. You may be seated. Join me in prayer. Our great God and Heavenly Father, my prayer this morning is simple, speak to us, continue to speak to us, O oh Lord, and give us ears to hear. For if we do not hear from you this morning, Lord, we will have wasted time, and we will leave here in much the same way as we entered. So speak Heavenly Father, give us ears to hear your voice, I pray. 
do this, Lord, for the sake of your great name and the glory of the gospel. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I'm bored. We've all heard those words. Many of us have said those words at some point, maybe even this last week. I'm bored. And if you're hearing words like that, depending on who it is that is speaking those words to you, depending on the nature of the relationship you might have with this person who is expressing their boredom to you, you might respond by saying something like, well, listen, there are far worse things in life than being bored. Here's a list of chores. God has heard your prayers. He's relieving your boredom. It's a miracle. <laughs> but what should you do if you find yourself bored with Jesus? What if the good news of the gospel is getting a bit stale to you? I happen to believe, I know it personally, that this kind of boredom with the gospel of grace, sort of a laissez-faire, ho-hum heart that just kind of seems to be going through the spiritual motions. Yes, I'm going to pray, I'm going to read my Bible, but it's same-o, same-o, no big deal. Well, that actually is a big deal. And that actually can be a big problem for many of us. And it may not be that you have abandoned the gospel outright. It's certainly not that you are starting to believe some aberrant doctrine. No, but it may just simply be that you've been in church for a long time. Maybe you've been surrounded by many Christians. Perhaps you have near-perfect attendance and home group for decades now, and you've heard the gospel so many times and in so many different ways that it seems to have lost its luster. Jesus doesn't thrill your soul like he once did. And yes, you're here this morning, which is great. You're here to worship him. But let's be honest, perhaps your expectations are so low for him and for yourself that you would actually count it a miracle this morning if something extraordinary happened in your life today. I wonder when was the last time that you actually heard another believer just honestly say to you, you know, I, I actually don't have a whole lot of passion for Jesus, at least not today. I'm actually struggling to glorify him, that the daily grind of life is grinding me down. And you know what? I'm not even sure I really want to change. I guess uh, maybe I am bored with him. I mean, some of you might hear that and you're thinking, like, you can't say stuff like that in a church because that stuff gets back to the pastor. And like this Sunday, you're bored. The next Sunday, what? Church discipline? And that's not what's going to happen. But I suspect, I know, I'm, I'm not the only one who in various seasons of life has, has maybe struggled with this. There's a sort of a spiritual apathy, just a, a boredom of some kind. And we want to think that we can hide that. We want to think that it's not a big deal. We want to think that somehow we can just keep it closed. But the truth actually will come out. We learned that last week, didn't we? Whatever it is that's going on inside your heart this morning, and there's a lot of things that are going on inside of our hearts. There always are. But if it is that sort of boredom, perhaps, it will eventually come out. Why? Because we live out of our hearts. And brothers and sisters, when the gospel of grace or when Jesus becomes boring, do you know what happens to your heart? It shrinks. Your heart shrinks. 
And when your heart shrinks, you find yourself loving less, complaining more, maybe rejoicing only when you absolutely have to or when you think it's absolutely vital and necessary. But the end result is that you end up having a small heart for Jesus and really for others, for the people around you. And that's when you know that you're in, you're in spiritual trouble. Perhaps you're there this morning. And if you're not, that's great too. I'm not trying to bring you down. But I think if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you, you know something of what I'm speaking of. And perhaps if you look at the last three months of your life, six months, maybe even the last year, what's the trajectory? What direction are you going in? If you are bored this morning with the gospel and kind of ho-hum about Jesus, I'm really glad you're here. This is actually the right place to be. Bored, spiritually, spiritually bored people need a really great Savior. And we need a great gospel. And by God's grace, we have that. The gospel reminds us that Jesus has purchased your full atonement for your sins by his death on the cross. And when you repent of your sins and turn to Christ, God the Father lavishes his great love upon you. His steadfast love. That is true in every season, in every circumstance. It's a costly love. It is a sacrificial love, but it is a faithful love and an enduring love. And by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in your life, the Holy Spirit is not neutral. The Holy Spirit is leading you to Christ, helping you see the beauties of the gospel that we, we love and that we profess. And yes, the Holy Spirit then is leading you to change, to, to be transformed, to grow so if you're bored with Jesus, really glad you're here, but you don't need to take a break from Jesus. You actually need even more of him. And that's what we find here in our text this morning. One of the more practically helpful things, and I say this from experience, when you find your heart shrinking and you find that the, the gospel maybe is just becoming a little bit stale, one of the more practical things we can do is to hear and see how Jesus is actually moving in somebody else's life. Even if by your own estimation, I don't know that he's doing a whole lot in my life this morning or in this season. Get yourself in a spot where you can see and hear the good that the Lord is doing in someone else's life. Now maybe that is in reading testimonies of how the gospel is breaking forth all over the world. I was just doing this this last week. I've never even heard of this place, and believers are, are I mean, the, the gospel is making inroads there, and it was such a huge encouragement to my own soul. But it doesn't have to be all over the world. It can be the person sitting next to you. It can be the person in your home group. Uh, ladies, you know what this was like. Uh, this last Ladies of Grace on Tuesday night, you heard three testimonies of the Lord's kindness and of his grace to his people. And since you are here this morning we have in Mark chapter 7 two remarkable testimonies of the Lord's extravagant kindness and grace to two interesting people. Two remarkable testimonies that perhaps the Lord in his grace will, will use in your heart this morning to kind of shock the system a little bit. Consider this a spiritual defibrillator. Boom. I should have practiced that more. I really wanted to come up with a bigger boom, but that's fine. <laughs> the first testimony is from an unworthy woman. The second is from an unlikely man. Both of them meet Jesus, and when the kindness and mercy and grace of Jesus 
meets an unworthy woman and a very unlikely man. Well, it's anything but boring. In fact, for these two people, they're never the same. Their lives are changed. The woman's story we read here in verses 24 through 30, her her testimony is remarkable for two reasons, and that's what I want to camp out on this morning. Remarkable for two reasons. Number one, it's remarkable for how unworthy she is. How unworthy she is. Let me read verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. He entered a house, didn't want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. Here's Mark's favorite phrase, but immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came down and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. So Jesus has just left the predominantly Jewish region uh, uh, by the Sea of Galilee, and now he's, he's venturing up the coast, so if you think about it here, he's, he's moved from this region over here, Mediterranean, he's going up the coast here, a largely Gentile area. In other words, he's ministering now to non-Jews. And it's there where he meets this Gentile woman. But she is no ordinary Gentile woman, as we learn. This woman, in fact, has four big strikes against her. Any one of which we might look and say, well, yeah, that's, that's a big deal. That's probably enough for us to all make a judgment and say, you know what, she's probably not worth it. I don't think you need to bother with her, Jesus. Just move along. Here's the first strike. She's a woman. And she's a woman at a time and place where women were not, ve- were not viewed as equal to men. In fact, sometimes they were viewed far less equal. They were second class or third or fourth, and they were just treated as property. Strike number two. She's a Gentile from Tyre. Tyre was known to be a place of wickedness, in fact. It was an evil place. It was said that the Jews experienced this extreme form of paganism. If they were to visit there, they would say, why would we go anywhere near there? Bad stuff happens in Tyre. So she's not only a Gentile from Tyre, but she's a Gentile at a time when there was enormous tension between Jews and Gentiles. I mean, the Messiah, according to the Jews, well, he's supposed to conquer and subdue the Gentiles, not embrace them and visit them. The Jewish historian, first century historian Josephus, he said that the Gentiles who lived in this very same area, well, they are our bitterest enemies. So the Gentiles that he's speaking here are the the very people who fought against the Jews some 200 years earlier in what was called the Maccabean Revolt. And from that time, it's not like they fought once, they settled all their differences, and they're having potlucks together. Not at all. They hated each other. They were constantly at war with each other. So for us, it, it might be a little like this, seeing a woman and saying, oh, she's Al-Qaeda. She's ISIS. She's Hamas. She's Hezbollah. She's completely against everything we stand for in this country. I don't want anything to do with her. She's our, she's our worst enemy. She doesn't deserve anything. Strike number three. This woman has a child with an unclean spirit. And her daughter has a demon. 
So we can well imagine the many efforts that this mom went through to help her, to heal her, to at the very least shelter her or hide her so that nobody would find out. This woman here has a very, very big secret to keep. And strike number four, this woman is Syrophoenician. In other words, she's, she grew up in the same hometown as a certain queen named Jezebel. And you don't have to know a whole lot about Jezebel to know that she was a certain kind of queen, evil to the core. If you grow up in that same hometown, you're probably not going to advertise that. Probably not going to tell too many people you would want to hide that. Four huge strikes against this woman. I mean, this is, she is very much down and very much out. Four big reasons why she should not be anywhere near Jesus. Why, why she's completely unworthy to be part of his kingdom. And why, well, Jesus should maybe move along, not be troubled with her. There's more, there's effective ministry to be done, Jesus. I wonder we can consider this woman. How many strikes are there against you this morning? Now, you might just think about the last week of your life. So you're just replaying some of those things. You might say, well, yeah, there are uh, two. Ten. Too many to count. I didn't handle that well. I blew that. I should have said something here. I definitely shouldn't have, I should have said nothing there. I missed it. Regrets, opportunities, sin, all of that stuff. I mean, the strikes kind of add up quickly, don't they, for us? Now, I know some of you might be here, and maybe you've been raised in the church, and you haven't done anything that would be scandalous to your family or bring ill repute to your family name. That's great. You've perhaps been in church every Sunday, except for those two Sundays you were sick in junior high. Praise God. But for the rest of us, even just in thinking about this last week of your life, how many reasons could you come up with, valid reasons, that Jesus could kind of look at you and say, mm, sorry, not interested, no thanks. It may just be the fact that you just honestly confessed before him that, yeah, I'm kind of bored with you, Jesus. That may be enough. But you may have far more reasons than even this woman did. Because the truth is, brothers and sisters, on our own, we are unworthy. We're all unworthy to come close to Jesus, to be anywhere near the King of kings and the Lord of lords, just like this woman. But her unworthiness is just half of her testimony. It's just half of it. Notice what she does in her unworthiness. You would think that someone who's got all those strikes against her would run away hide we just want to get away not be near anybody but in fact it is her absolute unworthiness that didn't keep her from jesus it's her unworthiness that drove her to jesus to fall down before him and to beg him for help and mercy i mean this woman understood she was unworthy nobody needed to tell her that but it, it didn't seem to matter to her and as she soon discovered, it, it actually wasn't a deal breaker for Jesus. And here's the second thing we notice then about her testimony. Yes, we see her absolute unworthiness. But you know what else is remarkable about this unworthy woman? Her faith. 
her remarkable faith to even approach a Jewish rabbi was socially unacceptable. And isn't it interesting? I mean, she does way more than just sort of saunter up to Jesus and just kind of hang out. Way more than that, verses 26 through 30. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Isn't it interesting that the actual healing of her daughter is it's kind of an afterthought for Mark. It's, it's incidental. It's going to happen, and it does. But really what Mark focuses our attention on here is the conversation between this unworthy woman and Jesus. That's what we're to note. And at first glance, we read this, and don't you all just think, did Jesus just insult her? It, it seems, uh, yeah, he just called her a dog. So I suppose if you're, you're kind of bored with Jesus, look at the passages in Scripture where Jesus rips into a needy woman and calls her a dog. Then he, then he becomes less boring. But what's actually going on here? Well, in Jesus' day, Jews often referred to Gentiles as dogs, but they did not have in mind man's best friend, cute puppy dog, furry, as a pet. No, they, they meant wild dogs, scavengers, mutts. Think actually more like a raccoon, where I don't know that raccoons serve any purpose, but they're freaky, they're weird, they're scary, they have eyes, they, they bite, they never, they're never satisfied. That's kind of what this is. That's how Jews refer to Gentiles. Now, it is important to note here, when Jesus uses that same word, or actually, we use the word for dogs, it's a different word. So he's not referring to this woman in that sense. He actually is, in this particular context, he's, he, the word there is puppy or doggy, the, the kind that you would keep as a household pet. Now, again, you're all thinking, well, that doesn't really solve anything. You still call her a dog, whether it's a puppy or a scavenger dog. It's still offensive, and it probably should sound like that to our ears. So what's Jesus doing here? This, this actually isn't a put-down it is a parable. And so the children here, Jesus says, let the children be fed first. Children is a reference to the nation of Israel. In the Old Testament, you find this a lot, that uh, Israel is often referred to as the children of God, God's children. And so he says, let the nation of Israel be fed first. It's not right to take what belongs to them, Israel's, and throw it to Gentiles. So in other words, Jesus is saying, hey, listen, I really need to feed my family first, but your turn is coming. So hang on. Don't go anywhere. I mean, Jesus understood his mission was first to bring salvation to the Jews, and then after that, yes, to the, to the whole world. In fact, he came to bring salvation to Israel. He would bless Israel. You remember God came to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and he said, look, go, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bless you. Why? Not just for your own sake, Abraham, so that through you all the nations of the world would be blessed. That was always the plan here. So what Jesus is doing with this woman 
He's testing her. He's, he's actually kind of pushing her buttons a lot. He, he's purposely engaging her. He, he's not putting her down, but he's, he's inviting her into that dialogue. He's inviting her into that, that conversation. He wants to draw her out. So he's pushing her buttons. Sometimes Jesus will push your buttons as well. I mean, he will push buttons that you didn't even know you had until he kind of begins to push them. But he's not doing that to put you down or to condemn you or to ridicule you or to make you shut up. It's an invitation, a dialogue, to, to talk. He, he wants a relationship with you. So he may be doing that with you this morning. He's kind of pushing your buttons a little bit. And it may be that you've come to him and said, Lord, here's, here's, what, I, here's what I need from you. And in prayer, he says, well, here's what I have for you. And it may be that it's not a no, it's just it's going to happen according to my time, according to my wise, sovereign purposes, according to my plan. So hang in there. Wait. I mean, how would you have responded if you're that woman and Jesus, as far as you know, he, he uses the image of a dog, if he said something like that to you? I think some of us, our natural tendency would be to slink away. We want to hide. I mean, Jesus just used the image of a dog. We've all seen a dog, right, with the ears tucked back and the tail between the legs and just kind of scampering off, he want, wanting to hide. I mean, Jesus gets in your face a little bit, challenges you a little bit, and, well, maybe that's your tendency. I just want to hide. I just want to scamper away. How many of you would be prone to defend yourself? can't believe you called me. I, I see hands. Thanks for your honesty. <laughs> that's awesome. I wasn't expecting that. Yeah, you defend yourself. Or maybe you just get angry at Jesus. How dare you call me a dog? You, uh, you don't know the half of it. I don't deserve that. I deserve better. But this woman doesn't do either one of those things. She doesn't scamper away. She doesn't get angry. She doesn't defend herself. Look at what she says in verse 28. Lord, even the dogs under the table eat up the children's crumbs. Translation. Lord, you could at least throw me a bone. She's saying, okay, fine, I get it, Lord. It's not my turn. I'm going to wait my turn. That's fine. Lord, I just want you to know I'm, I want your crumbs. I'll be fine with that. But I'm not moving until I get those crumbs from you. So she becomes like the female version of Jacob wrestling with an angel. Do you remember that in Genesis chapter 32, verse 26? where Jacob is wrestling all night long with an angel, and he says, I will not let you go until you bless me. That's what this woman is doing here, this very unworthy woman. She gets it, and she says to Jesus, fine, I'm going to wait my turn. But I just want you to know, Jesus, I'll take your crumbs. I need your crumbs. I'll be content with your crumbs, but I'm not leaving until you give me your crumbs. That's faith. That's gutsy faith. It's bold faith. I wonder when was the last time you prayed like that. I mean, this woman gets it. She gets the drift of Jesus. In fact, this unworthy woman here is one of the only people thus far in the Gospel of Mark that actually understand the parables of Jesus. The disciples don't get it. They're largely clueless, and we're going to see in the weeks to come here that they are becoming tone deaf to Jesus. 
Yet here we have this unworthy woman with at least four huge strikes against her, and she's the one that displays a gutsy faith in Jesus that, frankly, every last one of us here should want to aspire to. And in the parallel account in Matthew chapter 15, verse 28, Jesus commends her for her remarkable faith. Jesus says, woman, you have great faith. You have great faith. Well, what's great faith look like? Well, here's what it looked like for this woman. Faith is humble confidence in Christ. Probably the simplest definition. Faith is humble confidence in Christ. And what do we learn here from this woman? Well, she shows us, number one, faith keeps asking. Doesn't take no for an answer. Verse 26, she, she says she, she's, she's begging. That, the, the emphasis there is she continually, continually, she doesn't stop begging. Faith keeps asking, verse 26. Faith persists. She's not going to give up. Verse 28. I have to imagine that at some point, and maybe it was with, with her answer that then Jesus smiled just a little bit. You, you have great faith. Third, faith accepts what Jesus says, verse 29. Faith accepts what Jesus says and then claims the promise. Brothers and sisters, faith that is worth emulating is a faith that grabs hold of Jesus, that honestly acknowledges that we don't deserve any of the blessings of his kingdom, we don't deserve him as king, and yet throws ourselves down at his mercy and grace. That's the kind of faith that says, Lord, I know I'm unworthy. I know I'm not skilled, I know I'm not powerful, I know I'm not important. I'd just be happy to be anywhere in your household. Even, Lord, even if it's as your pet, that'd be good enough for me. I'll be content with that. That's what this woman does here. And Jesus welcomes her as way more than a pet. Jesus would die on the cross for her. That's how much he loved her. And that's how much Jesus loves you. However many strikes you do have against you, you think you have against you, or others have told you you have against you, Jesus died for you. He died for every person on the planet. He's the king that creates a kingdom by his death and resurrection that unworthy people can enter into and be changed forever. I don't know about you, but I want to meet this woman. I got so many more questions for her. But this woman has a faith that says, I know I need Jesus, and I know he will not send me away. If you're here this morning and you know that you need Jesus, he will not send you away. Jesus always accepts people who know that they need him and who put their faith in him. So I wonder, are, are you like this woman? even as you think about this last week and think about this next week in your life, starting in like about a half an hour, how different might this next week be than the previous week? I mean, when, when the strike or strikes are against you and you're starting to make a, a count and you feel, well, I'm not real worthy. Is that going to keep you from Jesus? 
people, will you allow that to, to drive you to him? And exercise bold, courageous, persistent, humble faith like we see here with this woman. One theologian said this, I think the words will be up on the screen. God calls us to persevere in faith, not because he's a reluctant father who's slow to meet the needs of his people, but because he wants us to step out in greater dependence and deeper trust in his ability to accomplish far more than we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. So where's Jesus calling you to step out in faith this week? Where's, where's he calling you to exercise that kind of bold, persistent, I'm not going to take no for an answer, Lord, that kind of faith. He is calling us all to do that. And if you need some help, here it is. You don't have, that doesn't mean, bold faith doesn't mean you've got to book a plane, tip, plane ticket to Timbuktu. Start with the people around you. That's where, that's where he's calling all of us to exercise that kind of bold, humble, courageous, persistent faith. It's the people in our homes. It's the people we see. It's in the routines of life. It's in the grind. There's a place to start. Well, how about this man? If the Syrophoenician woman was among the most unworthy to receive Jesus, this man that we're introduced to here in verses 31 through 37 would be counted among the most unlikely to receive Jesus. I mean, his testimony is, is really, in many ways, equally remarkable and not boring at all. His testimony highlights his remarkable need. His remarkable need. This man is deaf, and he has a speech impediment. Most commentators say perhaps he stuttered, but if he did, he didn't speak an intelligible word. So he can't hear anything, Nobody can understand him, and when he tries to speak, nothing of any intelligence comes out. Now, there is much stigma even in our day surrounding the deaf and the mute, but even more so in the first century. I mean, this man was, by all accounts, forgotten. He's ignored. Can you imagine his testimony? I mean, could he speak? But at least internally, yeah, no, nobody gave me the time of day. Everybody thought I was just useless. Nobody made eye contact with me. Nobody smiled at me. Life was just passing me by. I, and then I met Jesus. And so there's great drama here in actually what goes down and what Jesus does. Remember through the, the Gospel of Mark here, we've seen how when, when Jesus, oftentimes in many of his healing miracles, he, he just says a word. And most of the time, vast majority of the time, Somebody is healed, just a word, it's very simple, at least according to Jesus, and it's very public. This is a little bit different. With this man, it's private, but it's no less dramatic. Verse 33, Jesus takes this man aside privately, away from the crowds, away from the people, and notice what Jesus does. Sticks his fingers in, his, in this deaf man's ear, spits, puts his hand really on his tongue, in his mouth, and then he looks up to heaven. I mean, Jesus is very tactile, isn't he, with this man? And the, the image there is just, it's kind of odd. You think, what, what's he doing there? Well, I'll tell you what he's doing. He's actually speaking the language of this man. Speaking words is not going to do anything to this man. He didn't, he didn't hear yet. 
So Jesus is communicating. He, he's signing is what he's doing. It's in sign language. He's communicating through his movements exactly what he's going to do for this man who is in great need. Jesus didn't have to do that. I mean, he can do anything. He can, he can have his eyes closed and hands tied behind his back and he can heal people. He doesn't have to say a word. But he touches this man. What great mercy. What great kindness. And the very first words that this deaf man hears are the words of Jesus. Verse 34. That's fast. Be opened. So you might look at that and think, well, yeah, that's, that's just Jesus being Jesus. That's what he does. It is Jesus being Jesus. That is what he does. It's not boring. To speak it is to do it with Jesus. And this man's ears are open. Literally, the text reads that the shackle of his tongue was released. He was in bondage, you might say. And he spoke plainly. And evidently, he didn't stop talking. Verse 36, that'd be the tendency, wouldn't it? That happened to you? I imagine you'd have a few things to say. And even though Jesus told him, and all those gathered around, keep it quiet. Again, the bigger picture there of the mission of Jesus. They couldn't resist telling everyone about what Jesus had just done. Verse 38, their testimony is this. He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. If the King of kings and the Lord of lords putting his fingers in a deaf man's ear, causing him to hear, sticking his fingers in his mouth, causing him to speak. If that is kind of ho-hum and ordinary and kind of boring to you, I just want to encourage you to keep reading because you ain't seen nothing yet. It actually gets better in the Gospel of Mark. So if I were you, I would keep reading until the grace of God actually does work its way through the cracks and crevices of your heart Helps you to see, maybe for the first time, or like the first time, the goodness and grace of God for you. Don't stop reading, in other words, until you're convinced that you're not, you don't worship a boring Savior. The problem, well, the problem is us. And so the problem is your heart that perhaps is dull and desensitized towards your Savior. And so if that's your heart this morning, dull, desensitized, a bit bored well that's what Jesus wants he doesn't want you to act like it's not so he actually wants you to be honest before him he can deal with your boredom with him the most unlikely man here meets Jesus and in his actions Jesus reveals his true identity so again Jesus is saying to this man look you, th there's no magic trick here sticking my fingers or don't think that. This is the very grace of God, the fingers of God that has healed you. So Jesus, in effect, is telling this man, I'm the one to usher in this new kingdom. It's a kingdom filled with unworthy people. And it's a kingdom filled with unlikely people like you. In my kingdom, the deaf will hear, the lame will walk, the blind will see. You belong in my kingdom. And that's what the prophet Isaiah spoke some 800 years earlier. It's now taking place with this Gentile man, Isaiah chapter 35. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. 
Jesus is God come to earth to bring about salvation, to bring about rescue, to bring about redemption for some very unworthy people. Sinners like us and some very unlikely people. Sufferers as we all are. And every last one of us belongs in his kingdom. We need a king like Jesus. Or frankly, we're just not going to make it. Not in this life. And certainly not in the one to come. And so if you keep reading in the Gospel of Mark, you know what you find? Well, you find this true king who really does love you. Board, heart, and all. You find this true king who died on the cross for you who rose again triumphantly for you to give you eternal life. And you find this king who, by the power of the Holy Spirit, has power available for you and for me so that even if the strikes are against you, even if you've counted yourself out, as a child of God, you are, he's counted you as in. And that's not going to change for all eternity. So maybe you hear these testimonies this morning and you say, you know what, I want to know that, Jesus. He's a lot of things, but he's not boring. I, I want to trust in that Jesus. In fact, I'd be willing to give up everything to follow that Jesus. But I am so unworthy. Can I actually live in his kingdom? Will Jesus accept me? And the answer is yes. So turn to him, Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Repent, turn from your sins, believe the gospel, put your faith in him. One of the challenges I think that we're left with here, one of the very practical challenges that we're left with with a text like this is for us as God's people to be so gripped by these testimonies that our hearts actually begin to grow so that when we meet and encounter people this week that are different than us, and we will, we actually move towards them, not away from them. When you meet someone this week and their worldview is totally different than what you believe in, like this woman, maybe you would even say, that's my enemy. Or you, you meet someone who doesn't seem incapable of responding to Jesus at all, like this man. Well, it's tempting just to ignore, move along, say nothing, maybe even get angry with them. But Jesus calls us to move towards them as he has moved towards us in the gospel. So yeah, we, we fight our flesh and the power of the Holy Spirit. We're not here to win an argument. We're not here to pick a fight. But in fact, we, we ask God in prayer to, to give us a conversation with that person. Give us a conversation with some unlikely people and some unworthy people this week. The truth is, if if you're kind of bored with Jesus and the gospel is kind of ho-hum, no big deal, and your heart is small, then you're really not going to care too much about anybody. And you're not going to pray either. Spiritually bored people don't pray. That's usually the first thing to go. And so for many of us, if we met a woman like this or a man like this, we might just conclude She's too far gone. I mean, she's just making bad decision after bad decision. I mean, there's so, no way. There's no way that she would ever turn 
to Jesus. Or there's, there's a guy there. He, he's the most unlikely person ever to turn to him in faith. No way he's going to have anything to do with Jesus. Well, who is that unlikely person or unworthy person that you can think of in your life? Who is that? He or she has a name. Pray that God will give you an opportunity this week to have a conversation with them. And some of you, you know exactly that name of that person right now. You've been praying for them. Don't give up. Persevere in prayer. If there's something we can learn here, brothers and sisters, Jesus does some of his greatest work in the people that we tend to think are the most unlikely and unworthy to ever be open to him. And so if Jesus can rescue an unworthy woman who had all kinds of strikes against her, and if he can move in this very unlikely man's life, he hasn't said a word. Well, he can pretty much do anything, can't he? He can rescue you. He can forgive you of your sins. He can give you hope and a future. He can change this week of your life so that you don't have to live like you did this last week. The kingdom of God is filled with all kinds of unworthy and unlikely people like us. You qualify to come into his kingdom and to find life. Let's pray. Our great God and heavenly Father, I trust, oh God, that even as we've heard these testimonies this morning, that we would not quickly move on to the rest of our day and just forget what we've just heard, but that we would linger a little bit this morning. Linger around your grace, your steadfast love, the beauty of the gospel. I do pray, Lord, that even now every one of us here would be even just a little bit more aware of our great need for you and how it is that you are the God who actually meets our great need in Jesus Christ. So give us greater faith. Lord, on behalf of my brothers and sisters here, every one of us has challenges, every one of us has prayers that perhaps have not been answered, at least according to what we would desire. God, have mercy. Help us to persevere in faith. Give us opportunities, Lord, to share this hope that we have. And, and through it all, Lord, build us, edify us, strengthen us. Encourage us in our weakness, I pray. In Jesus' name.